Galatians 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 from the New American Standard Bible, just as an opening text for this lesson. Paul, an apostle not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Yeshua the Messiah and Yahweh the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from Yahweh our Father and the Lord Yeshua the Messiah, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us out of this present evil age according to the will of our Almighty and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. May Yahweh bless His word to our hearts today. If anybody can remember, before approaching Passover this year, I had begun a series of lessons titled, Paul's View of the Law. And we looked at, in those three lessons, we looked at walking by the Spirit, Versus fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Then we also looked at the curse for not doing everything that's written in the law. And we looked at the observance of days, times, months, and years. Well, after Passover and Unleavened Bread, I wanted to pick that series back up. But I wasn't quite sure where to do it. I wanted to stay in Galatians, but I kept going back and forth on which text to teach from this epistle. Every time that I would decide on a text to teach, in Galatians, I would think this. But in order to understand those verses, we need to first understand these verses. And by that, I mean that in order to understand something written, let's say, in Galatians 4 or Galatians 5, we need to first understand what's written in Galatians 1 or 2 or 3. Sometimes we forget that Bible verses were not written independently of each other. We are good quoters of one verse here and one verse there. But Paul wrote Galatians chapter 6, verse 18, the last verse of the book, and he wrote Galatians 1, verse 1, the first verse of the book. And they were, and still are, part of the same letter. And it's important for us to read the entire letter and to study the entire letter as an entire letter by Paul, to a particular group of people. Now, I tried in three sermons on Paul's view of the law to lay out a context in each of those sermons. I tried very hard because I want to honor Yahweh and I want to honor the people in the congregation. Anything worth doing is worth doing right. Amen? Amen. But no matter how hard I try, I will always fall short if I do not preach each passage in this epistle in the confines and context of the epistle as a whole. I want to talk about expository preaching in this lesson. You know, this is why expository, that is book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse teaching, is so important for your health as a saint and for the health of this congregation as a whole. Expository preaching is a form of preaching that details the meaning of a particular text of Scripture. It explains what the Bible means by what it says. Exegesis is technical and grammatical exposition and a careful drawing out of the exact meaning of a passage in its original context. A lot of times you hear me use words like exegesis and eisegesis. 
If you want to sound really intelligent to your friends, you can speak those words to them. But they're really not that difficult to understand. When you think of exegesis, think of extracting. You're extracting the meaning of a text from the text itself by what the text says. Eisegesis comes from the Greek word eis, which means to go into or to read something into the text. In other words, you don't go by what it says, but you read or assume something that's not there. We want to be exegetes. We don't want to be eisegetes. Just about anyone can step behind a pulpit and speak on a verse or a sentence out of the Bible. Anyone can make almost any verse in the Bible be about something in your life. But putting a few Bible verses in your sermon is not the same as actually preaching the Bible. When someone asks a preacher what he preached on last week, his first answer should be a text and not a title. So many preachers today fancy themselves with coming up with catchy titles, sifting a few verses into a sermon, and then talking about you for 30 minutes to an hour instead of expository exegesis and preaching. And weak dessert sermons make for weak dessert Christians. But good expository sermons, explanation of the text, make for strong, educated, Bible-believing Christians. Anybody can read a verse and then talk about life for 30 minutes and then weave that verse into something that you're going through in life right now. Now, I'm not saying that all of that is bad. I believe in preaching application. How a verse may apply to your life is needed. I think it's okay after we study the verse or verses or book in its original context. I think it's okay to ask, now how does this apply to me? So long as we do not deviate from the original meaning of the text. I like to remind people that the Bible was written for you, but it was not written to you. Did you know that? The Bible was not written to you. The Bible was written to people that lived in ancient times, in the historical context of ancient times. But it was written for you to glean from. And you'll always fall short in what the Bible means for you if you do not understand what it meant the very day that the text was written or penned down. So I would like to begin to study the book of Galatians or the epistle of Galatians in saying all of that because I cannot really explain to you in a sermon here or a sermon there or in a piece here or a piece there what the book is about or what Paul was attempting to get across to his audience. One of the things that I would like to talk about in Galatians in particular is the law of Yahweh because I've had so many people ask me personally face-to-face in an email or a text, Brother Matthew, do you have a series on the book of Galatians? Now, I think that they ask me that for the most part because I believe in obedience to the commandments of Yahweh. And Galatians is usually the go-to book for teaching that the law of Yahweh has been nailed to the cross or done away with. Galatians is generally the epistle that many Christians use to say that somebody is denying Christ by obeying the law that Yahweh gave in the Old Testament. I've had people quote a passage to me out of the book of Galatians and then look at me as though I don't believe that passage. I've had that happen more than once. 
They'll say something like this. You know, Matthew, if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ died in vain. And they look at me with a very concerned look because they're concerned about my faith or my belief or my, my salvation. And I usually respond with something like this. Yes, I love that verse. That's Galatians 2.21. Then they look at me like I'm not supposed to know where that verse is located. Because after all, surely Brother Matthew doesn't read or study the book of Galatians. So from the beginning here, I want to make it clear that I love the letter that Paul wrote to the churches, churches, plural, of Galatia. I love this letter. And I do believe that if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ died in vain. I love and I believe every verse in Galatians. It's just that I do not love and believe every understanding that people may have about the verses in Galatians. There's never a Bible verse that you can quote that I won't love and believe. But that doesn't mean that I will love and believe your understanding of that verse. Proverbs 4 verse 7 says, Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. So we want to understand what we read when we read the Bible. You can read a verse in the Bible, and you can say you believe in that verse, but you can lack in understanding. For example, you can read the Constitution of the United States of America. You can read the part that says that you have the right to bear arms. And then you can walk away thinking that what that means is that you have the right to wear a short sleeve shirt. That's what it says. No? Well, of course that's what it says, the right to bear arms. But is that what it means? Is that what it means? See, there is an understanding that you must have when you read that document. We're not even talking about Scripture now. We're talking about a man-made document, the Constitution of the USA. But you've got to understand that. Is that what that sentence in the Constitution means? Well, hopefully we all know the answer. No, it doesn't mean that. Now, I'm interested in first, first and foremost, I'm interested in what a biblical text says. Obviously, you cannot extract an understanding if you don't know what it says first. So I'm interested in what Galatians says. And then secondarily, I'm interested in what a biblical verse means in connection to the first part, what it says. A quick example here from the start at Galatians 2.21. Christians quote that verse, For if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ died in vain. That's the last part of that verse. And they act like, At least this is what I'm getting, the implication I'm getting from most Christians. They act like that means that it's okay now to disobey the law of Yahweh. I think that's what they're getting at. They see me doing something in the law, and they're concerned, and they say, Matthew, don't you know if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ died in vain. I get the feeling that they think the verse means it's okay to disobey that law now. So they see me or you obeying a law like remembering the Sabbath to keep it holy. That's the fourth commandment. Maybe wearing the tassels. Brother Jerry spoke on those a couple of meetings ago. Or maybe writing the Shema, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, where the Bible says that you write that on the doorpost of your house or on the gates to your property. And maybe somebody sees you out there doing that. You're writing the Shema on your doorpost or on your gates. 
And then they quote Galatians 2.21 to you, and they say, don't you know that if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ died in vain? And my usual response to that mindset, to people that have quoted that to me before, is something like this. So, does that mean, does that mean that it is okay for me to commit adultery? Or what about to pick your pocket? Since righteousness doesn't come by the law, that's your implication, Galatians 2.21, is it okay for me to pick your pocket, to keep your money? Is it all right if I'm pro-choice instead of pro-life? Is that what that means? May I curse my parents? You know, the Bible speaks very, very negatively about cursing your mom or your dad. Is it okay now to curse my parents? Because if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ died in vain. Am I allowed to do all these things? Because after all, Christ died in vain if righteousness comes by the law. See, people proclaim that they believe what the verse says. And I think oftentimes most people want to believe what it says. I think many Christians want to believe Galatians 2.21, just like me. But they fall short of a completed understanding, a completed knowledge by stopping at what it says and not going further into what it means in its original context. I had a guy tell me that I was legalistic one time because I kept the Sabbath day. He asked me, do you keep the fourth commandment? I said, yes, sir. My wife and I, my children, we honor the Sabbath to the best of our ability. We're not perfect in it, but we believe that it's applicable and we keep the Sabbath. He said, don't you think that's a little bit legalistic? And I said, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that it's okay to lay with your neighbor's wife? And he said, well, absolutely not. We teach that in the church. That's a sin. And I looked him straight dead in the eyes as a pastor, and I said, don't you think that's being a little bit legalistic? What I was trying to do was, as I like to say, make all the squirrels run at the same pace up here in in the top, see? Because it's never legalistic in the bad definition of the word. It's never legalistic to obey a law of Yahweh. The best definition of legalism is when you, you kind of push aside the laws of Yahweh and you come up with your own laws and then you expect everybody else to obey your own laws. That's maybe for another message at another time. You know, it's okay to quote a single Bible verse. It's okay to quote Galatians 2.21. It's okay to quote John 3.16. But you should never ever quote a verse to imply that a meaning does not exist. We need to be so careful here. Saints, listen to me. We need to be so careful here. This is Yahweh's Word. This isn't just something that I made up or you made up. This is the holy, precious Word of Almighty Yahweh. And I'm not just picking on people outside of our four walls in this sermon. I'm picking on all of us, every soul in this building. We must constantly remind ourselves to let go of preconceived notions. And it's difficult to do. If you've read a verse one way your whole life, it's difficult to see it in another light, even if that other light is the true light. It's difficult. My Papa Booth was a very godly man. He was a holy man. But he would not sell a dog. Because in Deuteronomy it says, do not bring the price of a dog into the house of the Lord. He wouldn't sell a dog. 
Now, I was never old enough to share with my pawpaw booth because I'm learning that's how we're supposed to do as younger men. When we speak with older men, we should share. Should not argue. It's really a sin. We should share. I was never old enough to share with my pawpaw the true meaning of that verse. You know, that's what that verse says in the King James Version. And I'm not knocking the King James Version. I love that. I think it's a beautiful work of art. It's not flawless, but it's a, it's a great Bible translation. But he believed that with all of his heart. He was wrong. Doesn't make him a bad man. But he was wrong in his understanding of that verse. He didn't obey Proverbs 4, 7. With all thy getting, get understanding. We've got to constantly remind ourselves. We've got to let go of preconceived notions. We've got to read the Bible in its original historical context and also grammatical context. We've got to get back to what it originally meant. Else we'll arrive at all sorts of unbiblical beliefs. Let me give you an illustration of exegesis. This might seem a little bit humorous to you when I talk about this. But sometimes people that I mention exegesis to, they get scared that they can't do it. They get scared that they can't interpret the Bible maybe because the word exegesis sounds really intelligent or educated. But I want to give you an example of exegesis with an old song. This is going to be very simple, but I think it will help you understand maybe grasp better what I'm talking about. Everybody knows the old song, Sweet Home Alabama. Now, you probably never thought that you would see this chart up on the screen when you came to Sabbath service this evening. Brother Matthew's going to talk about Sweet Home Alabama. Everybody knows that song. You could be in the furthest region of the earth and you still love that song, right, son? (laughs) They know at least part of the song, I should say. But songs say things and they mean things. I write songs. And when I write songs, I write them with a particular meaning. Now, somebody may come along 30 years from now and say, well, that song written by Matthew Jansen means this to me, and that might be okay when it's dealing with a song, and maybe their emotions needed to, to feel some strength from the song. But you know the song only means what Matthew Jansen meant when he penned the song. And it's the same thing with this song. So when you think about a song, you ask yourself who wrote it, why was it written, when was it written, what's its historical context, what do certain words or phrases in the song mean in context. Let me give you an example here. The first line in the second verse of Sweet Home Alabama says, well, I heard Mr. Young sing about her. Who is her and who is Mr. Young? Now, I know this is just a song. Bear with me. If you're really interested in learning the meaning of the song, what the lyrics originally meant, then you've got to do some research. You've got to take the time to transport yourself, in a manner of speaking, into the writer's mind and into the era in which the writer wrote the song. And I'm not going to go into much detail here, but her, in that line, is a literary device called personification. And it stands for the South or the Southland specifically the southeastern United States or the state of Alabama. The state of Alabama is not literally a woman. It's not a her. But personification is where a thing or an idea is given the attributes of a person. Like when somebody calls their old truck, like I do sometimes, come on, Betsy, you can make it up this hill. 
doesn't mean my truck is a woman. That's personification. I'm giving things the attributes of a person in my speech. I've had people tell me before they take the Bible literally. Brother Matthew, I take all of the Bible literally. No, they don't. Nobody takes all of the Bible literally. The Bible is a piece of literature, and it contains some things that are meant to be taken literally. It contains other things that are meant to be taken spiritually. Brother TJ taught us one in Ephesians 2 verse 1 that says, And you who were dead in trespasses and sin. Now we don't want to literalize that verse, or we might come up with a literal lie. Because that verse is a spiritual death. Dead in trespasses and sins doesn't mean that we were once a literal corpse and Yahweh raised us from physical death. It's talking about spiritual death. We were dead in trespasses and sins. That's spiritual death. See, There's a passage that all exegetes that's preached on Ephesians don't take literally. They take spiritually. The Bible has metaphors, symbolies, idioms, or figures of speech. The Bible is a piece of literature. When the Bible says that Yahweh owns a cattle on a thousand hills, it doesn't mean that you count a thousand hills and come to the thousand and first hill and say, you don't own the cattle on that hill because that's over a thousand. No, that's not what the Bible verse means. It means He owns everything in the world. A thousand is a big number used for hyperbole or exaggeration. So nobody takes the Bible all literally. Just like in this song, Mr. Young sings about her. He's not singing about a woman. He's singing about the state of Alabama that he calls a her. Who's Mr. Young? Well, Mr. Young is a reference to a man that lived at that time. He may still be alive today, but he lived at that time, and his name is Neil Young. And the most obvious way to know that this is his full name is that that full name is mentioned later on in that same verse of the song. The lines are, well, I heard old Neil put her down. And, well, I hope Neil Young will remember That's who Mr. Young is. And Neil Young was part of a folk rock group called Crosby, Steele, Nash, and Young back in the 70s. Neil Young is a Canadian that had written two songs about the South, and Sweet Home Alabama was a response to those songs that Neil Young wrote and their anti-Southern perspectives. Now, I could go on, but I think you get my point. You would never know that unless you took the time to look into the original meaning of the song. And just as easy, don't let anybody ever tell you that it's not just as easy to exegete Scripture as it was what we just did with the song Sweet Home Alabama. This is not only something that Brother Matthew can do. It's not like I have special knowledge and I'm the only one allowed to exegete the Bible or explain or interpret the Bible. That's not what I'm saying. You have the same Bible and you have the same ability It's just whether or not you're going to apply yourself and spend the time that is needed to understand the most important piece of literature ever known to man. The bestseller, as a matter of fact, on planet Earth. So most importantly, scriptures mean things. It doesn't really matter in the big thing, the big scheme of things, whether you know that Sweet Home Alabama means what I just showed you that it means. But what does matter is the scriptures. The book of Galatians that we read, the first five verses of, those verses mean something. Paul meant something. Paul had something in his mind when he penned those verses. And if we spend quality and quantity amounts of time, we can determine what Paul was talking about when he wrote those first five verses and the rest of the epistle in the book of Galatians. A lot of commentaries that I read act like Paul wrote the book of Galatians in response to 16th century A.D. Roman Catholicism. 
Now, I love the Protestant reformer Martin Luther. I don't love everything that he believed. But I think that he had a lot of good things that he believed, said, and wrote. But if you read Luther's commentary on Galatians, Luther's commentary is mostly a response to the Roman Catholic Church of his day. That's not what Paul's original intent for the book was. Paul was not writing against Roman Catholicism in Galatians. And in order to understand what Paul was writing about, we've got to go back further than the 16th century. Brothers and sisters, when Jeremiah 6.16 says, ask for the ancient pathways or the old paths, you've heard preachers quote that before? That's not talking about the Azusa Street Revival. That's not talking about the Protestant Reformation. That's actually the old paths of Jeremiah 6.16. That's talking about the ways of men like Noah and Enoch and Father Abraham, Prophet Moses. The ancient Hebrew faith really is what it's talking about. Ask for the old pathways and the ancient ways that you want to walk in. You want to know how to serve Yahweh and go back to the ancient paths? Don't stop at Martin Luther. Don't stop at Azusa Street. Go back to, to Father Abraham. Do the works of Father Abraham. Hallelujah. So we've got to study the meaning of His holy word in context. Brothers and sisters, it dishonors Yahweh to say that a text means something it does not mean. It dishonors Yahweh, and we've all done that before and had to repent. Praise Yahweh, He gives us the grace to repent. But it's dishonoring to our Father. We should take extra care when we open up this Bible and we read and we study. Father Yahweh, please, please lead me in the paths of righteousness. Please allow me by Your Spirit to glean through the proper methods of Bible study to glean the meaning of the text as it was intended when it was penned. That's what we've got to ask ourselves. Listen to this quote from John Wycliffe, who lived from 1330 A.D. to 1384. John Wycliffe said, quote, It shall greatly help you understand Scripture if you mark not only what is spoken or written, but of whom and to whom, with what words, at what time, where, to what interest, with what circumstances, considering what goes before and what follows. End of quote. John Wycliffe was a theologian, a Bible translator, and a seminary professor. And you can thank Mr. Wycliffe, the man on the screen, the portrait on the screen, you can thank Mr. Wycliffe for your Bible. Because he was one of the spearheads in getting the then-only Latin Bible translated into the old English of his time. You can thank that man when you pray tonight. Thank Yahweh for John Wycliffe. So we want to use these methods. This has been more of a Bible study lesson on how to study the book of Galatians. But we want to use these methods on the book of Galatians. I'm here as a pastor to help you do the best that you can and to understand the meaning of this book especially as it relates to the law of Yahweh. We're going to talk a lot about the law because I think that's why people want me to teach on Galatians. I'm not here to think for you. I'm not here to do your thinking for you. I'm not here to pressure you into believing what I believe. But I am here to lead you and to guide you as a good pastor should. Brothers and sisters, never be afraid of having learned, studious, and trusted men lead and guide you into properly understanding the Bible. I had somebody quote a passage out of 1 John 2 
to me one time, and they said, well, I need not any man to teach me. The anointing, the Spirit teaches me. Well, the problem there again is somebody's quoting a verse out of context, and they're believing maybe what it says, but not what it means. Because in context, in 1 John 2, the any man that the saints don't need to teach them is the Antichrist. It's not the leaders and the pastors in the congregation. Nobody in here needs the anti-Messiah and the Antichrist to teach them. The anointing teaches you, but it doesn't do away with another verse that John wrote or Paul wrote or Peter wrote about elders and pastors and shepherds. Paul told Timothy to establish elders in the congregations that were apt or able to teach, 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. And Paul also spoke highly about elders who labored in the word and doctrine, 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. Teachers are a phenomenal thing as long as they're ordained of Yahweh and sent by Him. How beautiful are the feet of them that bring the glad tidings, the good news, and the gospel of peace. There's this great text in Acts chapter 8. You ought to read it. And it speaks of Philip, who was an early disciple of the Messiah. And he runs up to a chariot, and he hears this Ethiopian eunuch reading a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And Philip says to the eunuch, Do you understand what you are reading? And the eunuch responds, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? That's what I'm here to do for you as a pastor. I'm here not to think for you, not to press you to believe what I believe, but to guide you and lead you and to teach you. And then he invited Philip to come up and sit with him in the chariot. And Philip began to do what? Explain the scriptures to the eunuch. And the eunuch was baptized that very day and believed that Yeshua was the son of Yahweh. Philip explained the meaning of the Isaiah scroll to the eunuch. I'm here to help you like Philip helped the eunuch. And if you are part of this congregation, that means that you trust me to some degree. It means you trust me to do this. I can speak for myself, but I wouldn't sit up under a pastor that I didn't trust. I wouldn't. I've told people before that if I did not pastor or teach, I would find a congregation that I believe best followed suit with Yahweh's word, and I would submit myself to the authority of the elders of that congregation. And I would learn and I would grow with the congregation. If you consider me to be your pastor, then I ask you to carefully listen to these sermons. Read the text, study the text, and then arrive at an educated understanding of the meaning of the text through the proper Bible study methods. Not ripping verses out of their context here and there, not trying to make verses say things or mean things that they don't, but handling the Word of Yahweh accurately and beautifully and respectfully. So what we're going to do is we're going to be in Galatians for my next five sermons. Next week I plan on continuing an introduction on Galatians. Tonight was more of a hermeneutical lesson on how we really go about studying the Bible, specifically this epistle. Hopefully you gleaned a few things in the lesson tonight, but for my next five sermons I'm going to teach on the book of Galatians, and then I'm going to take a break. I'm going to teach a few sermons on the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost before that gets here. And then after that, after the Feast of Pentecost, from there to Tabernacles, I'll teach more on the book of Galatians. 
And I'm like TJ, we're not going to rush through anything because I think that everybody needs to understand the relationship between law and grace and how that they're not exclusive of one another, how that they have their proper positions and parts in the life of a believer because we believe or we should believe that the Bible teaches both law and grace. And so we want to harmonize. We don't want to butt heads with those. So in the next lesson, I'm going to cover some background about the book and I might get into a few verses, but... I think we're going to talk more about to whom the epistle was written. You say, well, Brother Matthew, that's simple. It's the churches of Galatia. That is correct, but there are specific people in the churches of Galatia that Paul had in mind when he wrote this epistle. So we'll talk about that next week. Let's stand and close in a word of prayer. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father Yahweh, for your word. It truly is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Help us, Yahweh. Give us the desire. Stir up the desire in us to understand what the Bible says and means. We will praise you for it and we'll thank you for it for that gift is from you. It's perfect, it's good, it's from above. Yahweh, I pray you would stir up the hearts and the minds of every person in this congregation to have a love for your word as never before. And whether they're listening to me teach, Brother TJ teach, or Brother Jerry that they would listen with circumcised ears and hear what the Word says and believe it. And then where it's applicable, put it to practice. I love you, Yahweh. I love your Son. I'm so thankful for both of you. It's through your Son I pray.